This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Since we admire the musical talents of Mr. John Williams, we always appreciate being able to use a, a bit of his music here and there. He's most famous for his work on Star Wars, I think it's fair to say. And yes, apparently in December, the ninth and hopefully final installment of the triple trilogies of Star Wars is going to hit theaters, for better or worse. But the little fanfare you heard comes from a television program. Familiar to those who are watching TV back in the 1960s, the show was called Lost in Space. I think that's an appropriate way to start the program, since the item at the top of the show is the fact that the second interstellar visitor to our solar system has now been confirmed and named. It's been given the name 21 Borisov. Borisov is the gentleman in Ukraine who discovered this comet. I'm assuming he's discovered 20 others previously. It's pretty routine when comets are discovered for people to do the math and try and determine what the orbit of the object is. When they ran the numbers on this object, 21 Borisov, boy, did they get a surprise. It was moving a lot faster than comets normally do. If you're keeping track, this one's moving along at 93,000 miles per hour. And if you're adept at mathematics, as the good people at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory are, you will be able to confirm that that is too fast to be captured in a solar orbit. It's making a one-way pass through our solar system and then is going to keep on a-going. The first such interstellar object, which got the colorful name Womuamua, made quite a splash when it came zipping through our solar system. Although it showed no evidence of a fuzzy tail ind indicating a comet, such as the current one is showing, um, it did evidently show an acceleration as it left the closest part of its orbit to the sun, indicating that it was outgassing and that perhaps it too was an old comet with not too much in the way of volatiles left in its makeup. We didn't see that one until it was on the way out. Luckily for us, this current object, this interstellar comet, is still on the way in. It's 260 million miles away at the moment, which puts it out in what we would consider the asteroid belt at this point. On December 8th, it'll make its closest pass to Earth. Unfortunately, not all that close, still 190 million miles away. But you can bet people are going to have their telescopes trained on it to see what we can learn about this visitor from another solar system. We, of course, are going to be all over that. Yours truly plans to travel this week to Great Basin National Park in Nevada to take part in a Dark Skies Festival out there. I, of course, will report on that as well. Is that anywhere near Area 51? No. And now you're forcing me to mention the fact that, uh, as I understand it, something like 3 million people pledged to storm Area 51 last week, and I guess 150 actually showed. Probably eyeing the federal marshals, the well-armed federal marshals, thought better of storming the facility. I hope so. I should probably also uh, 
report briefly on um, the closure that took place last weekend of Niles Canyon, that beautiful region between Fremont and Sonole. It was quite a turnout for it. We recommended, dear listener, that you might want to consider uh, checking that out for the sheer fun of it. I don't know whether any of you did. I hope so. There was quite a healthy turnout of people on bicycles and a surprising number of walkers who uh, provided some amusement by the fact that uh, they were, of course, guarding zealously against the possibility of dehydration on that six-mile walk by, in some cases, carrying a bottle of water in both hands. The jogger who was jogging while taking a swig out of one bottle while holding the other in reserve did, did make me laugh. And yes, I have to admit, I did work up quite a healthy thirst myself on the ride. But then I got to enjoy that greatest, possibly, of all sensual pleasures, that of a tall, cold drink of water when you're really thirsty. I find that to be such a pleasurable experience that I enjoy getting a little bit dehydrated just so I can take it in. And I recommend you do the same, my dear listener. Of course, if you are at risk for health reasons, you you should, as always, consult your physician. I was relating the story of, of how it was that people seemed to be in, in, in deathly fear of dehydration, carrying water around to a friend of mine who, who grew up not far from Niles Canyon. And his comment was, yeah, my sister's like that. She can't seem to go into the TV room without carrying along a bottle of water. And, uh, you know, I, I would agree that, you know, hydration is, is important. But in the case of the vast majority of us, we are protected from danger by that phenomenon known as thirst. You know, we like to keep the humor quotient at a high level on this program. So I'm going to be unable to resist going to that pile of Uncle John's bathroom readers that were laying around for the production of the last couple of shows and pull out this item from a section titled April Fools. And it was back in April of 1994, in conjunction with April Fool's Day, that PC Computing Magazine reported to the public that Congress was considering a bill to make it illegal to surf the web while under the influence of alcohol and, in doing so, attributed the action to the term information superhighway. Said the magazine, Congress apparently thinks being drunk on a highway is bad, no matter what kind of highway it is. So many people took this story seriously and flooded Capitol Hill with angry calls that Senator Patrick Leahy and other politicians mentioned in the article had to publicly deny the story. You know, I do want to mention at this point, I should have probably mentioned at the very top of the show, that we're going to speak with... My neighbor, 105-year-old John Lissack. John is a tirelessly optimistic individual and full of good advice. And we were planning to, uh, to air some of that in the second half of today's program, but I think it would be better if I, um, if I worked it a little bit to provide a bit of context to some of the stories which he relates. So we'll, we'll air that on next week's show. And at this point on this week's show, I think I'm going to go to one of my favorite items that we use perennially, and I think it's one of your favorites as well, the good, the bad, and the ugly.
according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for sending in the clowns after a New Zealand man brought an, quote, emotional support clown, unquote, to a meeting where he was fired. Reportedly, the clown mimed crying and made balloon animals to lighten the mood. Reported Joshua Jack, aside from losing his job, quote, it was all smooth running, unquote. And I must confess, we were heretofore unaware of the existence of emotional support clowns. Whether Delta Airlines is going to allow you to take one on board when you fly, that's another matter. They apparently have now relented and are going to allow numerous animals on board for the emotional support of people who are, well, people who shouldn't be flying. Sorry, but if you can't fly without bringing on your emotional support horse or peacock, really, you should stay home. You know, sending the clowns would make good outro music for this, uh, this segment, Mr. McMillan. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for, I think it's fair to say, America, with the news that we are apparently home to the highest proportion of climate change deniers of any developed nation. It comes in at 15%. That is according to a new YouGov survey. The runner-up, you want to guess? Well, if you said oil-rich Saudi Arabia, go to the head of the class. And it was surely an ugly week for, you know, at least a flicker of self-awareness with the news that President Trump has explained his opposition to eco-friendly LED light bulbs by claiming that in the not-good light they omit, quote, I always look orange, unquote. Yes, that, of course, has to be the result of LED bulbs emitting not good light. And finally, in an item that is sort of good and sort of bad, we have this from last week. A Trenton, New Jersey city councilwoman is defending a colleague's use of the term Jew down. Councilwoman Robin Vaughn claims that when Council President Kathy McBride said the city could wait her out and Jew her down, regarding a female resident owed a court judgment, she believes McBride was speaking, quote, more in reference to negotiating, not I hate Jews. Vaughn explained, to Jew something down is a verb. And if you think we're going to make a wisecrack about that uh, particular item, well, think again. All right, we mentioned on last week's show we were going to discuss um, a little item on recycling today. And I'm sorry to note that uh, the news in this area is a bit distressing. Sierra Magazine, the publication of the Sierra Club, had a little piece about recycling recently. Commenting about their own piece, the editors of the magazine noted that after taking our poorly sorted plastic and food-stained paper for the last quarter century, China recently called it quits. The magazine notes that a lot of the plastic crap we sent overseas never got recycled at all, it turns out. It just got dumped with millions of tons of it flushing down China's rivers to feed that great Pacific garbage patch. We mentioned this program some months ago that studies show that the vast majority of garbage going into the ocean comes from five countries, China foremost among them. I don't think it had occurred to me that an awful lot of that garbage was stuff we sent them to begin with. 
which evidently is the case. The editors of the magazine noted that the six-pack rings that the uh, sad sea creatures get their heads stuck in might very well have come from the bins of well-meaning U.S. recyclers. They add that those rings, by the way, are not generally recyclable anyway. Like most plastic that's not number one or number two bottles, they're garbage. The magazine also notes that reinventing recycling is what is needed, and that may require abandoning our old goal of recycling everything. Referring to that mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle, they note there's a reason that recycling is third in that list. Reducing and reusing are far more important. You don't have to recycle the plastic bag you didn't use. By the way, the magazine also noted rather sadly that with the transportation and industry markets in decline, fossil fuel companies are looking to plastics to uh, experience a real boom and make them a lot of dough. They're going to need to quote a little bit from the article in question, entitled You Can't Recycle Garbage. The writer was an Edward Humes. He notes at the onset that for nearly three decades, your recycling bin contained a dirty secret. Half the plastic and much of the paper you put into it did not go to your local recycling center. Instead, it was stuffed onto a giant container ship and sold to China. Around 1992, U.S. cities and trash companies started offshoring their most contaminated and least valuable, quote-unquote, recyclables to a China that was desperate for raw materials. There, the dirty bales of mixed paper and plastic were processed under the laxest of environmental controls. Much of it was simply dumped, washing down rivers to feed the crisis of ocean plastic pollution. Meanwhile, America's once robust capability to sort, clean, and recycle its own waste deteriorated. Why invest in expensive technology and labor when the mess could be easily bundled off to China? We, uh, we appear to have a real problem here, here people. It seems paradoxically that part of America's trash problem arises from people trying to recycle too much. Well-meaning, quote, aspirational, unquote, recyclers routinely confuse theoretical recycling with actual recycling. While plastic straws, grocery bags, eating utensils, yogurt containers, and takeout food clamshells are all theoretically recyclable, they are almost never recycled. They jam machinery and lower the value of the profitably recyclable materials they are mixed with, like aluminum cans and clean paper. In addition, Americans are notorious for putting pretty much anything into the recycling bins, from dirty diapers to lawn furniture, partly out of ignorance, and partly because China gave us a decades-old pass on making distinctions. You know, I remember not that long ago, I guess it's, I don't know, maybe it's a couple decades ago by now, when we were told that we didn't need to worry so much about how we were going to recycle stuff, just dump it all into one bin. I remember thinking at the time, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And elaborating on just how bad an idea this was uh, comes from an article by Patrick Caldwell writing in MotherJones.com. Said Mr. Caldwell, if you're like me, you looked at a paper coffee cup or an empty tube of toothpaste and thought, is this recyclable? before tossing it into the recycling bin, hoping somewhere, someone, would sort it all out. People in the waste management industry call this habit wish cycling. According to Marion Chertow, director of the Solid Waste Policy Program at Yale, a wish cycler wants to do the right thing and feels that the more he or she can recycle, the better. 
Well, said Mr. Caldwell, I hate to break it to you, but this well-intentioned reflex is doing more harm than good. Not only that, but wish cycling is playing a big role in the current global recycling meltdown. First, a bit about the process. When my recycling is scooped up by a truck every week, it goes to a materials recovery facility, or MRF, run by a company called Recology. After the goods travel through the facility's jungle of conveyor belts and sorting machinery, they are shipped as bales to buyers in the United States and abroad who turn that material into products like cereal boxes and aluminum cans. But in an effort to get more people recycling, companies like Recology have become victims of their own success. In the early 2000s, that's when it was, almost 20 years ago, many communities switched from a dual stream system where plastics and glass and paper and cardboard each had their own bins. Remember that? They each had their own bins to a single stream in which all recyclables go into one bin and the sorting is done at the MRF. But when we decided to put all the things together, we decided to create a contaminated system, says Darby Hoover, Senior Resource Specialist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's almost impossible, for example, to put paper in a bin with beverage containers without getting the paper wet, which makes it unrecyclable. It doesn't help that many of us are wildly confused about what we should recycle. A decade ago, according to one estimate, 7% of the objects Americans put into their bins weren't supposed to be there. Today, it's 25%. For every ton of material we get in, there's 500 pounds of trash that has to be taken out of it, said Brent Bill, vice president of recycling operations at Waste Management, the country's largest waste disposal company. This garbage ranges from recyclables that are too dirty to process, mayonnaise jars still coated with a thick layer of eggy goo, for example, to items that just shouldn't be there in the first place, like plastic bags. Nearly a third of us have no idea what types of plastic our municipalities accept, according to a 2014 survey. When I did a quick survey, says the author of My Household's Bin in April, I found three plastic sandwich bags, a plastic freezer bag, and a disposable razor, none of which are recyclable though places like San Francisco let you recycle plastic bags if you bundle them. Our uncertainty leads to climbing costs and waning productivity at recycling facilities. Contamination costs waste management about $100 million annually, or 20% of its whole budget. Well, I think it's fair to say we probably should go back to, you know, the consumer sorting out what should go in different bins. I mean, seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? The Mother Jones article concludes by noting that for consumers, maybe the old mantra needs an update. Don't just recycle, reduce, and reuse. Zero-waste grocery stores are offering shoppers house-cleaning products and bulk groceries without the plastic packaging. A new service called Loop, available in the mid-Atlantic states since May, delivers items like ice cream and shampoo in reusable containers to people's doors and collects the containers when they're done. It remains to be seen how many consumers will be willing to pony up the deposit fees, which range from $1 to $15.75. They conclude by noting, when you do recycle, you should know what belongs in the bin. Rinsed plastic containers and glass bottles, cardboard, and beverage and food cans are almost always acceptable. Plastic bags, electronics, and paper covered with food generally are not Neither are insulated coffee cups and toothpaste tubes. 
And finally, if you've checked your local guidelines to see if an item is recyclable and you still aren't sure, it's best to ignore your wishful instincts and throw it in the trash. And another solution to this problem, in the opinion of yours truly, is for us to go back to deposit bottles. If you are of a certain age, you remember the good old days when a large bottle was worth like, I think it was three cents, and a a small pop bottle was worth two cents, and people would go out scouring the countryside to gather them up and redeem them. Of course, back then, the bottles were carefully rinsed and refilled and used again. It seems to me with modern technology, we should be able to do that again, but The bottling industry is definitely not in favor of this. Article in the East Bay Times from last July had the following headline, Beverage companies embrace recycling until it costs them. Subheadline notes that bottle bills, is what they're called when you put a deposit on the bottles, increase items being recycled but are costly for the industry. Of course, the industry interfaces with we the public, so what it means is it's going to be more costly for us, the public. But we're obviously paying a very high cost for our cheap beverage containers. This article in the East Bay Times is a reprint from the New York Times, piece by Michael Corkery, which noted the following, Recycling is struggling in much of the U.S., and companies say they are committed to fixing it. The beverage industry helps pay for pizza parties, celebrating top elementary school recyclers, and lends money to companies that process used plastic. Coke and Pepsi, along with Dow, the plastics producer, support nonprofit groups like Keep America Beautiful, which organizes events like litter cleanups. A recent video, funded partly by Keep America Beautiful, featured models dancing through a recycling facility in Brooklyn, which one advertising writer said makes recycling sexy. By 2030, Coca-Cola wants all of its packaging to be made from at least 50% recycled content. Well, I think they could do better than that. We used to drink Coke out of bottles that had been filled and reused, I'm guessing, hundreds of times. Well, dozens anyway. But the article notes that one approach to recycling that many of these companies do not support has proved to actually work. Gee, Better than models dancing through recycling facilities showing how sexy it is and motivating people? Hmm. And that would be container deposit laws, more commonly known as bottle bills, which cost them lots of money. In the 10 states where consumers can collect a few cents when they return an empty bottle, or can, recycling rates for those containers are significantly higher than other states. In some cases, they are more than twice as high as states without such deposits. For decades, beverage companies, retailers, and many of the nonprofit groups they control, <laughs> I like that, nonprofit groups they control, have fought to kill bottle bill proposals across the country with great success. Since 1987, only one state, Hawaii, has passed a bottle bill. This year, such measures have been proposed in at least eight states. Nearly all have been rejected. The result? Recycling in much of the country still depends almost entirely on the goodwill of consumers to place their used containers in a bin for pickup. The process is convenient, but means millions of bottles and cans head straight to the dump. Peace notes that the financial reason for such opposition is clear. If the other 40 states were to adopt expansive bottle bills, it could ultimately cost the industry billions. 
The beverage industry says the bills function like a tax and allow government to collect millions in unclaimed deposits. Are you following that? I'm not. Beverage distributors, in many cases, also pay a handling fee for the processing of empty containers. Susan Collins, president of the Container Recycling Institute, a research and advocacy group that supports bottle bills, said, I'm confident that the industry's true rationale for opposing deposit laws is that it costs them money and they don't want the expense. Yes, I believe that Ms. Collins also has strong suspicions that the Pope is Catholic. Here's the part I like best about this article. In response to questions from the New York Times about the industry's lobbying efforts, the American Beverage Association said in an email that while it had opposed bottle bills, quote, in the past, unquote, it was, quote, open to any ideas, unquote, that would create more recycled plastic. This includes a deposit or fee on our containers, the trade group said. Yes, when, when they say they're open to any ideas on this, I think what they're saying is that they agree in principle with the concept, which is the Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck once point, pointed out. When someone says they agree with you in principle, you can be damn sure that they're not going to agree with you in practice. This article did note that empty bottles have vexed the beverage industry for more than a century. They were described as the monstrous evil that saps the life from an otherwise prosperous trade. That was what the National Bottlers Gazette wrote in 1882. Back then, beverage companies desperately wanted their bottles back because the glass containers were so expensive to make. The companies even conducted raids on homes to retrieve their used containers from housewives who used them to store ketchup and medicine. But by the 1980s, mass-produced plastic made bottles inexpensive, and people rarely reused them. They often ended up being tossed on the side of the road, and the beverage companies simply made more of them. You know, this seems like such a straightforward fix. I, I think the public just needs to, like, you know, get behind this. Maybe it's going to take some visionaries out there in the, in the industry to uh, unilaterally offer up a deposit on their own products. Sadly, I feel they probably won't, but I'd like to think that they would. I'm sure many of you, like myself, are just horrified at the idea that this, this wonderful object, this, this glass creation made from sand, a very sturdy object that will undoubtedly be around for millions of years, is used once, drained of the sugar water that's inside of it, and then tossed in the landfill. This is, this is nuts. And by the way, wouldn't you be rather drinking out of a glass container, which is chemically inert, than something made of plastic, which is leaching all sorts of compounds into the liquid inside? I think you probably are. Not to mention a plastic bottle is useless in a bar fight. Well, thank you for that. All right, let's close with an item that's a little bit lighter, and uh, one that involves Davis, California, oddly enough. Researchers near Davis took it upon themselves to test the cholesterol level of urban crows. It is long suspected that crows in towns and cities have higher cholesterol than their country cousins thanks to their fast food heavy diet. Crows, of course, are experts at raiding trash cans. And to discover the effects of the half-eaten cheeseburgers and fries on the crows, well, researchers captured the crows and measured their cholesterol. And what do you know? They discovered that the more urban the surroundings, the higher the bird's cholesterol.
Scientists then took it a step further. They ran a cheeseburger supplementation experiment, according to New Scientist magazine, in which they dropped McDonald's burgers near crow's nests in rural Clinton, New York. Sure enough, the junk food munching birds' cholesterol levels were 5% higher than those of nearby crows who hadn't been fed burgers. That's sort of interesting, but uh, whether that extra cholesterol is bad for the crows remains quite unclear. There's no evidence that it affects mortality rates. Lead researcher Andrea Townsend from Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, noted that we know that excessive cholesterol causes disease in humans, but we just don't know what level would be excessive in a wild bird. We at Radio Parallax await the third part of the study where that is tested. We must take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stick around.